Father, it is our desire that you would be glorified through your son, Jesus, and, and that uh, he would be magnified in our lives. And I do thank you for this opportunity you've given us this morning to come together corporately to sing your praises and to uh, declare your excellencies. I do pray as we open your word that you would help us understand what you intended, and not simply to know and understand, but yet to then uh, be changed, to become more and more like your son, Jesus. Lord, would you bless your word as it goes out? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you think of ministry, what do you think of? Well, certainly there are all types of ministries out there. There are all types of churches ministering in different ways. And so when you think of ministry, what do you think of? Well, today we're going to take a look at a passage in our series in 1 Thessalonians where we're going to see what genuine ministry looks like. And indeed, we're going to see through the Apostle Paul's defense, we're going to be instructed um, as regard, in regards to and regarding genuine ministry. And within that instruction, we're also going to be warned concerning that uh, which would threaten such ministry. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. And we'll continue our look in 1 Thessalonians. And usually at this point in the message, I would give a, a kind of a detailed context for our passage. But since today's passage is heavily laden with that context, I'm just going to give you a brief overview and then we'll get to our passage. Well, we know the Apostle Paul is writing to Thessalonian believers. Yeah, Paul, Silas, and Timothy writing to the church of uh, the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And within this, the Apostle Paul and his companions had come and shared the gospel uh, with these Thessalonians. And they had turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now we know that the Apostle Paul, after having shared the truth with these Thessalonians and their response, was with them at least three weeks until the Jews of the city became enraged about his teaching concerning Jesus and caused a riot. And then Paul fled to Berea and Athens and then on to Corinth. Now in chapters 2 and 3, uh, having been away from the Thessalonians for a short time, probably less than a year, uh, in Athens, Paul sent Timothy back to see how they were doing, to strengthen and encourage them as to the faith, as to their faith. And then Paul went on to Corinth. And then in Corinth, he received the report concerning where they were at. And from that was the response, which is this letter. And it's important to note that the things that the Apostle Paul references here concerning these Thessalonians are things that he shared with them within the first three weeks of their salvation. They're very young in the faith. They're actually only within a year of having come to Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's get to our passage where I believe we're going to begin to see the answer because we're only going to be able to see part of it today uh, concerning what true, genuine ministry looks like. And within that, we're going to see that Paul, as he defends the ministry that the Lord did through him, we're going to be instructed and yet also warned. If you're not already there, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now I'm going to read... Uh, past our passage because it actually goes all the way through to about verse 12. It actually continues, but uh, we're only going to be able to look at verses 1 through 4 today. But I'm going to read through so that we get the context for what we'll see today. Verse 1 of chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. And that's where we'll end today. But let's keep reading because it continues. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. 
But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as to not be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved towards you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Now, hopefully, as I read through that, you'll see that everything is connected. But as I mentioned, we're only going to be looking at those first four verses. And as we read through it, you might have said, hey, this sounds similar to what we saw in chapter 1. We see in chapter 1, verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit, full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Kind of sounds sort of similar. Indeed, in chapter 2, it's similar to what we saw in chapter 1, but yet there's a different purpose, I believe, that we will say. You see, in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul shared his observations concerning the believers throughout the region and and the observations of the believers throughout the regions concerning the changed lives of these Thessalonians. Indeed, Paul was so thankful in chapter 1 because they had responded to the truth of the Word of God They had been fully convicted by the word of God and he was thankful for their labor or for their work of faith, their labor of love and their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was so thankful. And then he shared the observations of those around in the areas around there in Macedonia and Achaia and throughout the region who had heard of the reality of how these Thessalonians had turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. They had heard that. So Paul said, we don't need to say anything. The, the news of how you responded to the word of God has echoed throughout uh, to all believers, he said. And so with that in mind, we see that chapter 1 is all about the testimony of their real salvation through Jesus Christ. Yet in chapter 2, it appears the focus changes. And it seems to be uh, from the manner in which Paul had brought the word, from, from the response to the manner in which Paul had brought the word. Look at verse 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses Three to six. Notice he's actually beginning to defend himself. For our exhortation, excuse me, chapter two, verse three. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know nor as a pretext or a cover for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory among men, either from you or others, even though as apostles we might have asserted our own authority. He begins to defend the way they came. First of all, he talks about the results of how, what, when they came initially in chapter 1. But chapter 2, he's defending the manner in which they presented the gospel with them. For Look down at verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved towards you, believers. And throughout our passage in this portion, he calls upon the Thessalonians to recollect, to remember the manner in which they brought the word of God to them. Verse 1, for you yourselves know. Middle of verse 2, as you know. Middle of verse 5, as you know. Verse 9, for you recall. Verse 11, for as you know. And then he points to that which God is, where, where God is witness. Verse 5, then he calls upon both the Thessalonians and God as witness. In verse 10, you are witnesses and so is God. 
So the Apostle Paul here in chapter 2 is defending himself and his companions concerning the manner in which they brought the word of God to these Thessalonians. And that brings the question up, why would Paul, inspired by the Spirit, feel the need to defend himself with these Thessalonians in light of how they had turned and believed the word of God and followed Christ? Why would he need to do that? Why would he need to defend himself? Well, certainly we know the Apostle Paul had enemies. He had opposition, satanic opposition through men. Certainly that was physical. They would come after him. Uh, He was beaten, all sorts of things we'll see in a moment. He had opposition, and every true believer also will be opposed at times. Indeed, those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. Indeed, when the Apostle Paul shared the gospel with these Thessalonians, he encountered opposition from the Jews who were jealous and hostile and drove him out of the area. And they instigated slander, falsehood, and violence against Paul. Look at Acts chapter 17. This is after the conversion of these Thessalonian believers. We have this account of what happened in Thessalonica. And it helps us understand the context, which we'll see later also in our passage, the context in which Paul shared the word of God. Acts chapter 17, verse 5. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob. That sounds familiar these days. We sell those riots and stuff, right? Taking some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging out Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men have upset the world and have come here all, that have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up a crowd in the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and from the others, they released them. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Scripture is clear that Paul was opposed in many ways, often opposed outwardly. But he was also opposed inwardly as there were those who would sneak into churches and turn people's hearts away from the Apostle Paul and ultimately the ministry that God had brought through him. Indeed, Scripture lays a case that there were those throughout in churches that would do this, specifically in our passage, but also in 2 Corinthians. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I wanted to read the whole chapter, but I, I just don't think we have time. But the Apostle Paul, throughout this book, as you will see if you go back and read through it, he is defending himself against the accusations. You can read in his sarcasm at times what they are accusing him of. And so he's defending himself with those Corinthians who should have been those who loved him and were thankful for what God had done through him. But he had to defend himself because people had snuck into the church and turned their their hearts against him. And that's the danger. And that's what he's, that's where seen in 1st Thessalonians. So, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1. I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Now he's saying that sarcastically because they were saying Paul's foolish. But indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. This is 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, for I betrothed you to, betrothed you to one husband, betrothed you to one husband, that is Christ, that I may present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent Eve by his craftiness, excuse me, lest as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and a purity of a devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus in whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. That's sarcastic too, because these other apostles were the super apostles, the false ones, as we're going to see. And then he says here, 
But even if I am unskilled in speech, again, he's, he's, he's being sarcastic about the accusations towards him, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. Or did I commit sin in humbling myself? Again, hey, they're accusing him of all kinds of stuff. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached uh, the gospel of God to you without charge? And then look down at verse uh, 10. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I, I do not love you? God knows I do. But what I am doing, I will continue to do that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. And notice what he says. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. Again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish that I may boast a little. That which I am, that which I am speaking, I am speaking as, not speaking as the Lord would, but in, as in foolishness in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you, being so wise, bear with the foolish gladly. For you bear with anyone if he enslaves you, if he devours you, if he takes advantage of you, if he exalts himself, if he hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as insane. And then he goes on to give a list of things that really reveal his true genuine apostleship, the suffering that he went through. You see, men snuck into the church, false apostles here in this case, and they were turning and poisoning the church towards the apostle Paul. And he needed to share the truth of how he had come to them. We see that back in the earlier chapters. And I believe the same thing was happening here with the Thessalonians. Indeed, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, and thus his servants do also. And he does have people in churches, those who will come in and slander so as to turn away the hearts of those from godly men who have ministered the word of God with right motives. But the Apostle Paul, he was concerned, but yet it hadn't gotten as bad in Thessalonica as it did in Corinth yet. Look in chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. He had sent a message to see how they were doing, and part of that was how do they feel about us? Are they still a good, a good, they still love us, you know? He was concerned that the tempter might have got to them in the midst of their persecutions. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 5. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I sent, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter may have tempted you and our labor should be in vain. But now Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and your love. And then notice this, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us as just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distresses and afflictions, we were comforted about you through your faith, for now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. They hadn't turned against Paul, but yet the threat was there. And evidently, chapter 2, we see it, and all the way through the end of chapter 3, Paul feels the need to defend the manner in which he came, the manner in which he came to them. So then, the apostle Paul begins to do so, and I believe it's very clear it's a defense. He'll call witness. You're, you are witness. You are a witness. So with that in mind, it's evident that these evil men and apostles were tempting the Thessalonians. Uh, they were saying things maybe like, hey, he's a flatterer, or he is in it for the money, or he's in it for the glory. That's what Paul is doing. He's in it for those things. Now, why would I say they were maybe saying that? Look in First Thessalonians chapter 2. And look at verse 5. 
Notice he says this, just seems like out of the blue. Why would he say this? For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext or a cloak for covetousness or greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles we might have asserted our authority or or asserted our weight. We didn't lord over you. We didn't flatter you. We didn't come to take your money. Evidently, there was the little slanderous things going through the church and how tragic it is that evil men and women creep in, gossips and slanderers, turning the hearts of believers away from those who had genuinely led them to the Lord and were feeding them the truth of God. And nothing has changed, by the way. Nothing has changed. We have this for our instruction and for our warning. One uh, pastor writes this. He says, when his body was out of reach, speaking of Paul and the physical persecution, they, they assailed him through his character and affections. They crept into churches which his love and zeal had gathered here and there, and they scattered injurious suspicions against him and his disciples, among his disciples. He was not, as they hinted, all that he seemed to be. And he goes on to share the implications based on the scripture that we see here. The reality is this happens. And you see, if we follow Jesus Christ, if we are obedient to him, it's going to happen because we are not greater than our master. Do you remember what they said about Jesus? Matthew eleven nineteen. For he was a gluttonous man and a drunkard and a friend of sinners and tax gatherers. They slandered Jesus too. They slandered him. Ultimately, to turn people away from that from him and thus the message that he brought. And the same is true with the Apostle Paul. The same is true. Folks, we've experienced that here. I've experienced and it's still going on. Yet this passage is an encouragement, but also a warning not to fall into the same thing they were being tempted to do. Not to listen to those evil suspicions and slanderous reports but to look at the reality of how those who have shared the word with you shared the word with you. That's the testimony. So how painful this must have been for the Apostle Paul, the possibility of spiritual enemies succeeding in breeding suspicion and mistrust towards him among the Thessalonians, which he loved. So then the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit, I believe, brings forth a defense, not to defend himself, ultimately, It's to defend the ministry of the word that came through him, as we'll say. And he's going to remind them of the facts, of the realities of how they came to them. And it's very interesting that he feels the need to do this in this church that early. So then, notice with that in mind, we see, first of all, in defense, the Apostle Paul reminds the Thessalonians that his coming was not in vain. It wasn't empty. It wasn't empty. Chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. He begins with a four. He's explaining something. He's connecting what he shared in chapter one with what he's sharing here in chapter two. What he just finished. Well, what did he share in chapter one? That their testimony was evident to all, that they had truly turned to God from idols, to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. They responded to the powerfully convicting gospel, and these Thessalonians were saved. And now he's explaining, for you know, based on what happened to you, you yourselves know, it's emphatic, you know, and those tense is a tense you've known in the past and you still know now, that, and and the term know here, different words for know in Greek, this one means you have recognized it, you have come into an understanding of this, You have known in the past, and that knowledge continues to now, that what? Brethren, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. He uses that term coming to you. The word speaks of an entrance. It's the same word he used back in chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves report what type of, what kind of coming or reception, same word, we had with you. He's saying, you know 
the reality of what happened. When we came to you, you responded to the truth of the gospel. That's the first part of his defense. You came to faith. You came to faith. God used his word through us, and you responded to the gospel. That's the first part of his defense. You responded. You know that our coming was not in vain. And this thought continues through to the point where he shares and kind of puts a slight bow on it in verse 13. And for this reason, after defending himself, he says, We constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but the word of God as the word of God, which performs its work in you who also believe. He's saying, hey, when we came, God worked through the word and you got saved. Remember that. Remember that. When you hear the slander and the things that are said, remember the truth of what really happened as we shared the word of God with you. Remember the truth. So Paul recalls to their memory his coming to them, that it wasn't empty. And then notice, he begins in his defense to remind them how he and his companions imparted the word of God. And we're going to see in this passage, he's going to remind them of two basic things. How he imparted the word of God and how they imparted their lives. He's going to share the character and manifestation of how it was done. And you need to recall, and God is a witness, so that you don't succumb to this falsehood. So with that in mind, notice he says in verse 1, and from this we gain great insight into how biblical ministry of the word is done, by the way. Great insight. Not the primary application, but there's great insight. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. And then verse 2, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. And he goes on, for we never came in this wicked fashion, as you can read in verse 5 and on. So then the Apostle Paul is going to share how he and his companions imparted the word of God to them. Later on, he'll share in this passage, not only did we impart the word of God, we imparted our lives. We imparted our lives. But here, this is the manner, which is a defense to protect them from the wickedness of evil men and women who would slander the messengers that God brought forth and ultimately the message. Now notice, they spoke the word courageously amid much opposition. This is an example for us in terms of ministry. In terms of ministry, he says, but after verse two, we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. As you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Again, middle of verse two, as you know, you know this, you know this. Well, what is it that they know? They know the reality of the suffering Paul and his companions had in Philippi. And then, even after that suffering, they came to Thessalonica and they shared the word of God in the midst of much opposition. Much opposition. Well, Acts chapter 16 reveals what happened in Philippi. Turn to Acts chapter 16. And you might remember that the Apostle Paul, being obedient to the vision that God had given him to come over to Macedonia, which includes Philippi and Thessalonica, to share the gospel. And he was obedient to that. It's very important that the Apostle Paul is following God's commands and what he is doing. And that, as we will see, if you trust the Lord, brings boldness when you know it's his will, by the way. So he says here, but after we had suffered, or literally having suffered before and being mistreated in Philippi, as you know, and then look at Acts chapter 16. The Apostle Paul had cast out a demon from a slave girl. This very interesting. The slave girl was following Paul and them around. These are servants of the Most High God. Listen to them, basically. Yeah, that's true, but it was demonic. It was true. It was trying to twist things, trying to get them to uh, elevate her for pointing to them, as we'll see. Notice verse 19, Acts 16. But when her master saw that her hope for profit was gone, because Paul cast out a demon, said they seized Paul and Silas, and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. Verse 20 of Acts 16. 
And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and proclaiming customs which is not, it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. And the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. This is the suffering he's talking about in Philippi. And after they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And having received such a command, they threw them into the inner prison and fashioned their feet in stocks. And then we know the tremendous, wonderful reality as Paul's in prison, they're singing hymns and an earthquake comes and uh, the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And him and his whole family is saved. Then ultimately he is shamefully treated and run out in a sense. They beg him to leave because they find out he's a Roman citizen. So in our passage, he says, after having suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, we see they came to Thessalonica. And he is giving this as an example of the right motives for sharing the word. How so? Did they get to Thessalonica? Did they hide and lick their wounds? Did they say, no more of this? I don't want any more beating. I don't want to get hurt. You know, we share the word of God, we get beat up and jailed. Did they stop sharing God's word? No. After they had been suffered and been mistreated, they came along to Thessalonica. And these Thessalonians knew it because obviously they were bearing the marks of those beatings. And then the Lord, having called them to go there, they were faithful. He says in the middle of verse 2, we had the boldness, back in 1 Thessalonians 2, in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Much opposition. I read about that opposition earlier in Acts chapter 17. There was opposition to them through the Jews there in Thessalonica. They were following them around. There was opposition, and out of envy and wickedness, they riled up a mob against them, right? We saw that. And he says, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. You know this. Think about this. We're following the Lord. We're getting beaten up for it, but we're faithfully proclaiming the word of God in obedience to his word. Now, this term boldness here uh, speaks of acting with an attitude of openness that comes from a freedom or lack of fear. He says we had the boldness to speak. This is a boldness in our God to speak the gospel of God. You see, the Lord had called them, as I mentioned before, to go to Macedonia and preach the gospel. That was his will, direct command for them. And it was God's will that no matter how much the opposition there was, they trusted him and abided in him. He would give them, as we see, and he did give them the boldness they would need to speak the gospel of God. And you need to be bold in a sense, as we'll see, as we see, You need to not fear men and fear the beatings and fear all the stuff that might happen to be able to speak because it certainly could be coming. You see, God, he says, the boldness in our God. God is the one who gives us that boldness to do what he calls us to do. But it didn't, Paul understood that this doesn't come apart from an absolute reliance on the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 20, the apostle Paul asked them to pray. He asked them to pray. Turn to Ephesians 6.20. The Apostle Paul is not saying, hey, I'm some hot apostle and and I got all the gifting. I'm good to go. I'll just share the word and it's good. I'm so trained and perfect and all this. No, not at all. He was dependent on the Lord as evidenced by asking for prayer. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. With all prayer and all petition, pray at all times in the Spirit and with this in view. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And then notice what he says. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Pray that I'd be able to speak boldly without fear. Pray I'd be able to speak openly without fear. Need your prayers, brothers and sisters. You see, because he understood that only God could enable him to do that. 
In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, after having been beaten or released, uh, they went to their companions and they, they reported what happened. And they prayed that the Lord would cause them to speak boldly, and they did. They trusted the Lord. You can read that in Acts chapter 4. So Paul says, remember, we had the boldness after being beaten in Philippi, and amid much opposition right here, we had the boldness in the Lord, remember that, to speak the gospel without fear. And folks, it is the Lord that enables us not to fear men in a righteous way. What do I mean by that? There are plenty of non-believers who don't fear men and are bold in what they say. They don't fear anybody. They don't fear the consequence of man, but these do not also fear God. And that's the difference. You see, the difference between the boldness of the world and the boldness of believers is trusting the Lord. You see, we don't fear men, but we fear God. And within that, as we rely on him, he gives us the ability to share when he calls us to do it. You see, because the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. You can fear man or you can trust in the Lord. And obviously there's fear of the Lord involved in that. Proverbs 29, 25. The type of boldness Paul is speaking of does not speak of self-confidence had one person talking about how he's going to teach or preach and talks about, hey, I'm, I, I'm a good speaker. I'm like, whoa, we hear that. You go, wait a second. Not good. He says here, he had the boldness in our God. It speaks of a confidence in the Lord to enable you to do what he has called you to do without fearing man, but fearing him. Indeed, when we are bold in the Lord, we still are fearful in a sense of him. There's a fear of him. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And if you turn to 1 Corinthians 2, we see that even though he was trusting the Lord, there was a fear and trembling and a focus on Christ. 1 Corinthians 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech, and wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. This is great for preachers. This is what they need to hear in seminaries. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's all about Jesus. And he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, it's not fear of men, but it's the fear in the context of, of, of fear and trembling, right? We see that. And he says here, and I was, and my message of preaching was not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Boldness in the Lord doesn't speak of self-confidence, but it's confidence in the Lord in the context of a proper fear of him and a lack of fear of men. This is the way we are to minister. This is a, an example for us how ministry should be done. Those who have speaking gifts, those who are teaching and preaching, should never fear men. Never, ever. They should fear the Lord and allow him to enable them to speak clearly and boldly as he ordains. And notice what he was bold to speak back in our passage, 1 Thessalonians 2. To speak to you, that's Thessalonians, the gospel of God. That's the good news from the word of God concerning Jesus Christ. God the Son who took on human flesh, who died for our sins. You see, we are sinners in whom God will judge us for our sins. He will bring his wrath upon us and mankind for sin. But yet Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. And he died and he rose from the dead. And if you will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus who died in your place, he'll forgive you of your sins. They had the boldness to preach the gospel in the midst of much opposition. Remember that, Thessalonians. When you hear the slander, this is what really happened. This is the truth. This is the way we imparted the word of God to you. So then in our passage, Paul's reminding them the manner in which they came. Boldness from our God amid much opposition. The word opposition means agona. It comes from the Greek word agona. We get our word agony. Serving the Lord isn't always uh, peaches and cream. It's difficult. It's agonizing at times. And they were faithful to declare the word of God in the midst of opposition because God had given them 
the openness and the lack of fear of men, but fear of him that they needed to proclaim the word of God. Now, on a side note, this is not telling us as believers, it's not telling us as believers that we can just go out and boldly proclaim Christ anywhere we want. Paul was obeying the Lord concerning a direct direct, a direct uh, command to go there and preach the gospel. We're not to cast our pearls before swine. We're to make the most of our opportunities with believers. We're to pray for open doors. And when God opens those doors, yes, we can, with his confidence and his boldness, share the truth of God. So then the Apostle Paul defends himself here that they boldly spoke the word in the midst of much opposition. And notice he continues in our passage to remind them of his motives, that they were pure and proper motives. Pure and proper motives. I'm going to read back from verse 1 into where we're at. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much opposition. Now he's going to explain four for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. He says our exhortation. Now it's interesting. He speaks of the proclaiming of the gospel later on. He speaks of the speaking of it, the verse before. And now he says our exhortation in parallel with that, which implies when he spoke the gospel, it was an exhortation to them, which it is an exhortation, by the way. And the term exhortation here means a strong verbal appeal or entreaty. You see, the gospel Paul shared wasn't just read off a card. It had an exhortative, and that's a new word, exhortative component to it. And the gospel concerning the good news of Jesus has an exhortation to it. Turn to Jesus and be saved. Judgment is coming. God loves you so much. He sent his son in your place. We see in other places like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. When God opens the door, there is an exhortative component to it. When he opens the door. Just as you know how we were exhorting, verse 11, encouraging and imploring each one. Same thing. So notice, he says, it didn't come in a manner that was evil. For our exhortation, verse 3, does not come or didn't come from error, or literally in the original language, it also says from impurity also. From error and from impurity or by way of deceit. And it's important to know that because he's isolating three specific things. Two of them are where it came from. The other one is the sphere in which it came. For our exhortation doesn't come, first of all, from error. It does not arise out of error. E-R-R-O-R. And now that doesn't mean making a mistake. It's not what that speaks of, this word. It speaks literally of a wandering, that which is erroneous or twisted. Our exhortation didn't come out of that which was twisted or erroneous. That's not where it came from. Paul handled the word accurately. He no doubt shared it in the way he had exhorted Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. He said it didn't come from error. Notice secondly, he said our exhortation was not from, literally, impurity. It didn't originate from that which is impure. The term impure spoke of worthless material waste. It was used to speak of decaying flesh uh, that caused ceremonial uncleanness and defilement. It was used figuratively to speak of moral uncleanness. We'll see that later on in chapter 4, verse 7. He said it didn't come from that. It didn't originate from that. Now, he's giving his motives because he doesn't say, as you know, in these places. He's giving his motives, but his motives are, are, are validated by the things you could see. It didn't originate by that which was impure. And then notice lastly, he said, it did not come by way of deceit. 
or literally in deceit. It didn't come in the context of deceit. The word deceit literally means bait for fish. The exhortation of the word of God that Paul and his companions brought forth was not brought forth in the context of deceit. Their motives were not deceitful. Their methods were not deceitful. What they preached was not given in the context of deceit. And folks, that implies that people do do that, don't they? The word of God that Paul brought forth did not originate from error, impurity, and it was not deceitful. Paul's motive, although unseen, his motives, although unseen, were not evil. But they were evidenced that they were this way because of his behaviors. We'll see in a moment. Paul had great confidence in the truth of God, and he did not attach any of these evil characteristics and motives because he was walking with the God of the truth. Never should any ministry originate from error, impurity, or deceit. Never should it. If it does, it's not from God. Paul said, this didn't happen with us. Now, from these characteristics that were not, atta- that were not attached to Paul's exhortation of the word, we see in a contrast a positive characteristic of his motives in the rest of this passage here that we're going to see today. Notice he says, verse 3, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. And then notice the contrast. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. And Oh, this is so important for ministry. This is true, genuine ministry. The Apostle Paul is sharing what's really going on in the heart of those who are sharing the word of God, that God is actually leading to do so. He says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. So we speak. The term approved here speaks of having passed the test by examination. And we have a tremendous principle here for those who are to teach and preach God's word. Remember, James says, let not many of you become teachers. It's evident that Paul understood that God tests those he will entrust with the gospel, and they must pass the test before they are entrusted with the privilege to share his word. We've been approved to be entrusted. We've been approved. What does Paul tell Timothy two years or years later? First Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Paul was approved by God. He was approved by God because he was faithful. We see this with deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3. They must be faithful first before they serve as deacons. There are certain things in the body of Christ you need to be faithful to do, especially preaching the word of God. You need to be faithful. And folks, there are a lot of people who have giftings but are not faithful. They haven't passed the test yet. They haven't passed the test yet. Yet they want to minister rather than getting their lives right and being faithful. Sadly, we've seen that here. I had someone come to me and tell me that they were gifted as a pastor and they were going to go to seminary and God was leading them to the seminary. I said, that's great. But what needs to happen first is you need to be faithful. And as I shared, you know, how so? As I shared, I see you not around. I see you're complaining. You've got family issues. Your kids have problems. And I thought to myself, you're saying God wants you to put you to service, but yet you haven't passed the test. And I encouraged them to be faithful in the little, to be faithful, and then God would use them. So that was not so with Paul and his companions. They were faithful. They had passed the test. They knew they had been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. They were entrusted with the gospel. And what is that? They had a stewardship of God's word. A stewardship. They were entrusted with the gospel to be faithful to that gospel ministry. To be faithful to the preaching and teaching of the word of God. They were entrusted as God's stewards with the most valuable and glorious truth in the universe, the gospel of God, which which certainly is the gospel concerning Jesus Christ, but it goes even farther. Look at Romans. The whole book is the gospel, basically. 
They were stewards of the word of God, and they had been approved by God to be entrusted with it. That's how real ministry should be. 1 Peter chapter 4.10, As each one has received a special gift employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If you speak, speak as the very oracles of God. Speak the word. If you serve, serve by the strength that God supplies, so that in all things Christ will be glorified, right? God will be glorified through Christ. There's a stewardship. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He knew what his stewardship was as, a, as, a, as an apostle, as one who would share the word of God, preach and teach. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now the Corinthians, they had issues with Paul, and Paul was trying to address those. They had, he says in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That's the word of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. You know, someone who has a stewardship must be trustworthy, be found literally faithful. It's required. It's required. And the Apostle Paul was faithful. He was faithful. What is required of a steward? That they be found trustworthy. He had a stewardship of the word of God. He, and now, has God gifted you in preaching and teaching? Has he given you a gift in that or evangelism, whatever it is? If so, you have been entrusted with a stewardship of the word of God. Have you been approved by testing? Has God tested you? Are you being a good servant or have you failed? Confess and be faithful by his power and strength and allow him to approve you. So then, what was the ultimate motive here? And this is so important for ministry. This is, this is so important. But just as we have been approved back in our passage by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. This is so important. Our motives didn't come out of uh, error or impurity or deceit, but our motives were that we had a stewardship and we've been approved to speak the word of God, and so we please God and not man, and he examines our hearts. He knows that's true. This is what all ministry should be about. If you're doing ministry to please men, you're in big trouble. You're in big trouble. Paul said, we do it not as pleasing men. So we speak, thus we speak. Literally, thus we speak. Continually, habitually. Been approved, entrusted with the word, then speak. And notice his ultimate motive. So we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Thus we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. You see, you're ultimately going to be motivated either to please God or to please men. It's one or the other. One pastor writes, when our primary aim is to please men, we lose our capacity to please God. Conversely, when we seek to please God and speak according to his word and love, we truly have the capacity to minister to others. Pleasing people stems from wrong motives such as fear, rejection, desire for approval, power, praise, and so on. And pleasing people occurs when we seek to meet our own needs by our own strategies rather than trust in the Lord. So we speak not as pleasing men. This should drive every pastor who is truly following the Lord. Everyone who has a speaking gift, everyone who is teaching, everyone who speaks, this should be driving. And it applies to everywhere else. Everywhere else. So we speak not as pleasing men. Your motive cannot be to please men. It needs to be to please God. Look at what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1. It's very important. He says, hey, if I was a man pleaser, I actually wouldn't be a servant of the Lord. I couldn't be. Because Paul used to be a man pleaser, by the way. He knows exactly what that was. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, implying he used to do that, 
I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You can't please men and serve the Lord in anything, in anything. It will eventually self-destruct. We see it. Our desire should be to please the Lord, should be to please the Lord. That should be motivating not only preaching and teaching, because we've been approved to do it. Our motive should be that in everything. Because the fear of man brings a snare. When we try to please men, we're, we're hooked up. Ephesians chapter 5. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. A few things about pleasing God. You see, before we came to faith, we were men pleasers. And we should no longer be men pleasers. We should be God pleasers. Ephesians 5 verse 6. And I'd like to read the whole thing, but I'll just read a part of it. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. You just give a list of sin. He says, therefore do not be partakers with them. Don't, don't sin like you used to. Don't be like they are. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth. Verse 10, trying to learn, or literally the word here is demonstrate, trying to prove what is pleasing to the Lord. We want to demonstrate that which is pleasing. We want to walk in the light. We want to please him. And we know that it's impossible to please him apart from faith. You've got to trust him. How can I please the Lord apart from trusting him? It's impossible. It's a walk with him. Jesus is the only one the Father is well pleased with, but when we abide in Jesus, he's well pleased. We please him. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5, or 11, verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the testimony or witness that before his taking up he was pleasing to God. Enoch trusted the Lord, and he walked with the Lord. It doesn't please the Lord for you to just do your job on your own. Doesn't please the Lord for you to determine what you're going to do in the future on your own. Doesn't please the Lord to preach on your own. It's terrible, by the way. Please the Lord by trusting Him. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Hebrews 11:6. It's impossible. So then, our motive for ministry should be pleasing the Lord. How do we please Him? By obeying Him. And abiding in him. That's how we please him. By not fearing man, but fearing him. By being obedient to what he shared. Indeed, Paul makes this clear in what was read earlier in 1 Corinthians. We see in first or 2 Corinthians, one last, a couple last passages. Say one last, there's more than that. But turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, what we heard read earlier. You see, the Lord's examination is all that matters. The Lord is the one who examines our hearts. And we'll go back to 1 Corinthians in a minute. But 2 Corinthians, he says in verse 9, chapter 5, Therefore we have it as our ambition, whether absent or home, to be pleasing to him. Hey, because we're going to be with him forever, that's our, that's our destiny. We want to be pleasing to him. And notice what he says, 4, verse 10, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Therefore, we obey. We obey. You see, because God is going to judge our deeds, what we do matters on this earth, not for sin, but for reward, what we do, good and bad. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we, we want to please him. We want to please him. Romans chapter 14, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow before to me, every tongue shall give praise to God, so then each one shall give an account of himself to God. When I know that's happening, I want to trust him rather than trust myself, I'll tell you that right now. Because that's what he's told me to do. Biblical ministry is motivated by a pleasing of God, by obeying and relying on him, rather than trusting in man, which would include trusting in yourself. That's what biblical ministry is motivated by. 
And oh, this is the demise of many pastor and ultimately a church pastoring to please men rather than God, obeying him by sharing his word righteously. What are we to do? So we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. He is the one who examines our hearts. Now, one last passage. Turn to 1 Corinthians 4. And I shared this earlier. It has to do with the stewardship, but then it goes on to speak of whose examination really matters. You see, God knows your heart. God knows my heart right now if I'm doing this to please him or to please myself or to please you. He examines the heart. He examines the heart. 1 Corinthians 4, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God, mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it's required that stewards, that stewards required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not acquitted. By this, I'm not acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. He's aware of that. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Don't listen to people who slander about people's motives. You can't see that. You can't see what their motives are. Now, Paul shares his motives, but he's going to back up when we come back together next time with the behavior that came forth, which shows that he was following the Lord and obeying him. He says, we speak, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines the heart. Now, you're going to struggle with this in everything you do. If you've got a speaking gift, you're going to start to be tempted. I'm tempted. I'm here. A visitor comes in, I'm thinking, start to get concerned. No, Lord, I trust you. You're going to enable me to speak. I can't do it. I trust you. I want to please you. If you've fallen into this deadly sin by pleasing people, what will they think? Confess it right away. It should be, what does God think? If you're concerned about what he thinks, then it doesn't matter what other people think because you're going to be right with him. Confess it right away if you're in the what will they think mode or you will become totally ineffective in the context of sin. You will be a bad steward and lose eternal reward. Do the right thing to please the Lord. This is what true, genuine ministry should be like, and it expands to every area of our lives. So then, what does genuine ministry look like? We see here it's the declaration of the word of God through Paul's defense that he obeyed and proclaimed the word in the midst of opposition. He did so boldly, but the boldness was from the Lord. He didn't share from error, impurity, or deceit because he knew he had been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so he spoke not as pleasing men, but God who examines the heart. How does this apply to us? First of all, it's an encouragement. If you're doing the right thing, this is an encouragement. It's an encouragement. But it's also a warning not to fall into the same thing as a church. Don't listen to evil and slanderous reports. Look at the manner in which the word is coming forth. That's what I've been called to do. That's what Paul was called to do. Secondly, if you're men pleasers, it may be an evidence that you don't know the Lord. That's the way we all were. Maybe you need Jesus, and he's so gracious. If you're continually, habitually a man pleaser, that's the way you think, then maybe you don't know the Lord. Confess your sin, turn to Jesus, and be saved. And then maybe we've fallen into that man-pleasing philosophy that's throughout the church, which is so sinful. Confess it. Turn from it. Turn to Jesus from it. And then some narrow applications scream off the page for every area of our lives here. In everything we do, we should be trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. I want to please you in how I do this, Lord God. Help me to trust you. I want to please you in how I relate to my spouse. I want to please you in how I raise my kids. I want to please you in how I work, Lord God. I want to please you in how I share. Lord, help me to trust you in all those areas. Some of you have fallen. Just confess, be restored and forgiven, and move forward. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you so much for your word. It's so wonderful to hear. And I thank you for Paul's example, tremendous example that you have given us. I pray that we would be like him, that we would uh, not do things to please men, but you. That we would abide in your son, we would trust him. That we would not fear men, which brings a snare, but we would trust you. And Lord, for those of us who have speaking gifts, we would do exactly what we saw today. We would speak in the ordained area that you've called us to do so boldly with your boldness, not ours. And that we would do so from hearts that are right, desiring to please you rather than men. Thank you for your word and thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.